0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Teach Me Something, the podcast where I decide to learn about something, anything based on what I'm currently curious about. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, I teach it to you. To me. To well, you and, everyone and whomever else chooses to listen to the podcast. That's right. I'm Melissa.
1: And I'm Everett.
0: Today, if you didn't read the title, we're Ooh. talking about monotremes. And I um, feel like my goal with this episode is to surprise and or impress you with just how strange monotremes are. Okay. But I don't feel like I'll succeed. Oh. Um seeing as how you probably already think an egg-laying mammal is pretty weird. Sure. So I don't know if I'm going to impress or surprise anyone. Um, Yeah, spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Monotremes are the egg-laying mammals. Right. That is what we call them in the biology world.
1: Biology world. Makes sense. Um, But
0: we'll get into that in a minute. Okay. Um, I'll throw out a little content warning. Uh Uh-oh. I do intend to talk about animal sex. Okay. With proper anatomical terms and all that stuff. So if there's anyone listening that doesn't want to hear that
1: next uh, episode.
0: Now you now you know. Well it's at the very end. Okay. So you know you could stop at the end when I start talking about it. Just just so you know.
1: Sure. Sounds good. Well uh how about you teach me something?
0: Okay. We're gonna start like right at the start with what is a mammal.
1: Okay, let's start there.
0: What is a mammal?
1: You asked that, yeah.
0: I was asking that to you. Oh,
1: okay. Well, uh, my assumption is that it's defined as what would be called warm-blooded animals. I used some quotes there, but uh, they also, I thought it was primarily that they also gave birth to live young in most cases. It would have to be most cases then, because we're talking about ones that don't.
0: Yeah, it's not a defining characteristic of a mammal, neither of those things, because other animals have that too. Okay. So, let's start it off. Remember the whole uh, classification system we've got?
1: So it would be a vertebrate?
0: Domain, kingdom, phylum, class, order, family, genus, species. Mm Mm-hmm. Deer, king, fail, came over for good sex or spaghetti, depending on how PG we have to keep the acronym. Okay. That's how we used to remember it. Anyways. Mammals are a class in that, in that hierarchy. They're a class. Uh, class mammalia. Okay. There's about 5,000 of them. 5,000 species. Sure. That is. Um, so there are three characteristics that make a mammal different from any other vertebrate. Okay. So all mammals have these characteristics and other animals don't. Okay?
1: Can I make one more guess?
0: There are three. So guess it, any of one that you can think of.
1: Is it that they have... A specific hand mm-hmm. structure with phalanges, carpels, and I can't remember the other one in your hand.
0: No. There is a bone thing, though. Okay. But the hint is mammal. Mam. Mamma.
1: Mammary. So in the breastplate or something?
0: No, they have mammaries. You oh. you, you were making okay. it far, too.
1: But you said... Well, okay. Keep going. They
0: produce milk in their mammary glands. That's one. Okay. What did I say? That threw you off.
1: That... One's related to bones.
0: One is related to bones, but there are three of them. Okay. I was just trying to get you to guess the one I thought might have been most obvious because it was mammal. Got it. M- I, mam- I was trying to connect
1: mammary glands to oh, bones. It's bones.
0: <laughs> no, no, no one's going to get this one. I'm sorry. People okay. that went to school for zoology might get this one, but it's obscure and not important to anything. So um, the second one is fur slash hair. Okay. That's a mammal thing. Uh, and the last one is... That mammals all have three special little bones in our inner ears. Oh, yeah. That Humor, that's anvil, the and stirrup. Yeah. Oh,
1: I didn't know that, that was a mammal staphes. thing.
0: That's what I'm saying. Who, okay. Who even cares? It's cool. Okay. Yeah. Maybe it'll win you points on Jeopardy sometime. Sure. Um, there is no universally accepted classification system, of course, and I say of course because taxonomists are always fighting over like taxonomists do not agree on anything.
1: Always fighting. Ever. Yeah.
0: Because we've got what looks like it's related. We've got now DNA starting to come about. It's it's very confusing. Mm-hmm. And there is no agreement. But the most commonly accepted uh, system is going to divide mammals into two subclasses. The prototheria and the theria.
1: Mm. One's so, before the theria and one is yes, the theria?
0: You're, you're correct. <sighs> Winning. Which one do you think is before the theria?
1: The prototheria.
0: No one I mean- <laughs> <laughs> I mean, which ones do you think belong to Prototheria? Um, oh,
1: I don't know. The
0: the monotremes is okay. Prototheria. And Go. then there'd be, so, there, Theria would be made up of infra classes, which are below classes, which is somehow different than subclass, which means underclass, below yeah. class and underclass. It's very, taxonomy is very complicated. Let's just say that. Hmm. There's like, Anyways. And then, you know, supra order, like above, above some things or yeah. above some things. It's very confusing. Anyways, Theria has two infra classes, Metatheria, the marsupials, and Eutheria, the placental mammals, the true mammals. You meaning true. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, the ones that, you know, gestate, gestate their offspring with a placenta, you know. Yeah. So that's the most accepted ha- hypothesis. Um, you know, the other ones like, but what if the, you know, should be one group that slid marsupials and monotremes and the other groups all... Anyways. Yeah. Okay. okay. So we used to think that there were only three species of monotreme. We thought there was like, you know, a platypus and, you know, a long, a big and a short big and we're done.
1: Oh, see, I was going to say, I was getting word there because I only knew of the echidna and the platypus. So... Yeah,
0: I'm specifically talking about number of species. Okay. So now we think that... There's five species.
1: The short-footed platypus, the long-footed platypus, and the regular platypus? There's just one platypus. Okay, there's fine. still
0: just one platypus. Uh, living extant species, that is, of okay. platypus. makes sense. Um, Ornithorhynicus anatinus? Anatinus, yeah. Um, and then there's four echidna species now, we think. Okay. So, three extant long-beak echidnas. So, those are in the genus Zaglossus. Sure. And, and one short beaked echidna, the Tachyglossus aculatus. And we'll talk about him later, but there's a bunch of subspecies and stuff. Okay. Um, so the three species in Zaglossus are the Western long beaked echidna, the Eastern long beaked echidna, and this is my favorite. No, it has nothing to do with the other ones. That's why I like it. Okay. Well, and also you'll see why I like it. He is named the, or she is named the Sir David's long beaked (laughs) echidna.
1: Okay. After one Attenborough?
0: Zeglossis Attenboroughi. Nice. Is the Latin name. And I love that so much. <laughs> Good. Um, so the defining feature of the monotremes that sets them apart from other mammals, of course, is not that they lay eggs specifically. Oh. It's that they have a cloaca. Um,
1: like a bird. which
0: they do lay eggs. Like a bird or reptile. Huh. That is right. So it's one hole in which everything exits. Sure. You know. And enters. And, you know, just, just one hole. That's what it is. That's what it is because monotreme means one hole. M- oh, mono. Meaning one. Monos. It's Greek. So monos for single. Yeah. And trema for hole.
1: Okay. Yeah. I didn't know what trema meant, so.
0: Um. Now you know. Yeah. It's one of those common anatomy ones that, anyways.
1: Well, I figured it wasn't one train, like a monotram, <laughs> but whatever. I was close.
0: Yeah. So all the extant species of monotremes are indigenous to Australia and New Guinea. Okay. And they all eat mainly invertebrates. Um, Platypuses, long-beaked echidnas are pretty much nocturnal. Um, And you see the short-beaked echidnas out during the day, but the majority of their activity does still take place at night. Um, The long-beaked echidnas only live in New Guinea, except for they might have discovered another population in the Kimberley region of northwest Australia. Okay. Not sure about that one. Um, Platypuses live in freshwater environments in eastern Australia. Short-beaked echidnas live just everywhere. Okay. All over the place. Yeah. Um, So besides the egg-laying thing, there's a ton of differences between monotremes and therian mammals. Um, So we're going to start with a few similarities. That makes the most sense. Let's Get those out of the way because there's only a few. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So like other mammals, monotremes have fur. Okay. They're endothermic. So, like you are saying, they make their own body heat. Yep. They have hair on their bodies, like I already said. Perfect. Hair, fur. They make milk through mammary glands. Mm -hmm. They have a single bone in the lower jaw, which is another mostly mammal thing.
1: But not universally mammal thing.
0: Right. And they do have those three little bones in their ear. Okay. Um, But that's where I'm going to say the similarities end. Sure. Okay. So, placental mammals have this connective structure. Um, We have it in our brains that communicates between the left and right hemispheres. It's called the corpus callosum. Reptiles and marsupials don't have one and neither do monotremes. Okay. So instead, they have to do the communication between their hemispheres but with a structure called the anterior commissure. Placental mammals have that structure as well but its role has been minimized. Sure. So it's like we have since developed this new thing.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: So... The the cool thing we'll, I'll talk about the evolution later, but because we kind of have a good idea of the evolution which diverged first, which kind of mammals, yeah. we know when different things evolved. Of so now we know that corpus callosum evolved after the split between the marsupials and the placental mammals. Yeah. Which happened after the split between the monotremes and the rest of the mammals. So you know what I mean? We've got like this timeline of when certain things might evolve in mammals. Because we think monotremes might have been, like I said, I'll talk about this more later, but it might have been a lot like the first mammals.
1: Like They were the, the proto-mammals. The first mammals. types
0: of mammals, the ones that we evolved from, did lay eggs. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, that's what we think. Um, anyways, another difference is that the living monotremes, they lose their baby teeth quite early and they don't replace them. So the adults don't have teeth. Um, and that tooth loss might be related to the development of electrolocation. And we'll talk about that in a bit as well.
1: Okay, cool.
0: Um, Monotremes also have these extra bones in their shoulder, um, the interclavicle and coracoid and a few other things. And those aren't found in mammals, you know what? Though they're found in reptiles. And that gives them Mm. a reptile-like stance where they're, Uh, Legs are on the sides of their body, not underneath their body like most mammals. So if you can imagine a Komodo dragon running around, that's kind of the way that a monotreme would look running around because that's the same place their limbs are. Very cool. Um, So speaking of monotreme legs, all monotremes have a spur in their ankle region. Um, It's not functional in echidnas. It's not functional in female platypuses. It is only functional in the male platypus where it has a very powerful venom.
1: Yeah, cool.
0: Um, which you've probably heard about. It's one of the only venomous animals. So the venom is derived from venomous beta... mammals. Sorry, that's what I meant. Yeah. Correct. Um, the venom is derived from beta defensins, which are proteins that um, create holes in the viral and bacterial pathogens. Um, and the interesting thing about that is that some reptile venom has different types of beta defensins. Okay. Like, this is the mammal type of beta defensin, but there is a beta defensin type in reptiles as well. So, it's another trait monotremes share with reptiles. So, scientists think it's actually an ancient mammalian characteristic, um, because a lot of the fossil, like, archaic, um, non monotreme mammals from a long time ago had these spurs. Okay. Yeah. Um, so they also, uh, used some molecular, molecular studies uh, to show that the main component of the platypus venom emerged before platypus and echidnas diverged from each other. Mm -hmm. So the most recent common ancestor of the living monotremes was probably a venomous monotreme. Makes sense. Mm -hmm. So one of the other traits that make monotremes unique among mammals is that their stomach doesn't produce stomach acid, meaning that food just kind of passes right through the stomach which has led to quite the debate among scientists about whether monotremes have stomachs at all. You'll find a lot of people saying they don't have a stomach then because we define stomach as the organ of the digestive system that uses acid to break down solids.
1: Right. It's more of just a storage area.
0: Is it anything at all really? It's kind of just doesn't do anything anymore. Um so the lack of acid began with the like monotreme ancestors, you know, they didn't require it, so they stopped wasting energy to produce it. Bye. It happened a long time ago, we think. Yeah. Um, The other thing is interesting about them is their zygotic development. So um, most mammals have what's called holoblastic cleavage. um, And monotremes do something called meroblastic cleavage. So I'm not going to really go into what that is because I do remember embryology being like one of the hardest courses I ever took in school. So I'm not going to try to, you'd have to, Learn five million new things before you could even start to talk about what these things are. Okay. To be short about it, hollow meaning like whole, and marrow meaning partial. Okay. So there's different cleavage meaning division. Yeah. So the zygotes sure. divide in a different way.
1: And zygotes being part of the.
0: The zygote is is what happens when you have a fertilized embryo.
1: Right. I was going to say during... Immediately. Reproduction.
0: Yes. Zygote is like the first step in your your little sperm and egg thing growing into an embryo. Okay. Um, and the interesting thing is that birds and reptiles also use meroblastic division, like the monotremes. So, um... Okay. Let's talk about the evolution. When did all the weirdness start? (laughs) When did this begin? Um... Again, there's debate. No one can agree on anything. I kind of touched on this earlier. So there's the leading hypothesis is the Theria hypothesis, which says that the monotremes diverged early on from the Therians just after the mammals diverged from the sauropsids. So the sauropsids are birds and reptiles. Yeah. Okay. Um, then that Therian hypothesis goes on to say that, you know, the monotremes, so the prototheria diverged first. And then later, there's a split between the marsupials and placental mammals. Okay. The competing hypothesis is the marsupianta hypothesis, which says that there was an ancestor of marsupials and monotremes that diverged early on from placental mammals, and after that, marsupials and monotremes split. Right. Um, So at this point, we can say the vast majority of evidence points to the Therian hypothesis. It
1: does. So just to make sure I understand that, that means that the monotremes split away, leaving the placental and the uh, marsupials on the same track, basically. And then the marsupials split from the placental ones yeah. there. Okay.
0: Correct. Exactly. Yes. Think of it like a road you're driving down, mm-hmm. and the monotremes took an earlier exit.
1: Instead of the marsupials <laughs> and the marsupials and, and the yeah.
0: placentals stayed in the car. Yeah. Yes. Instead of the marsupials and the monotremes carpooling and taking an yeah. earlier exit together. Got it. Okay. Um, actually, that uh, that analogy works. I'm going to use that analogy now when I try to talk about taxonomy. Great. I almost said taxidermy. That's not the Mm. same thing at all.
1: Well, depending... I am
0: going to talk about taxidermy later, though.
1: I was just going to say, isn't taxidermy (laughs) part of taxonomy once they're dead? (laughs) No. No. Potentially.
0: (laughs) Anything could be part... No. No. Okay. Um, so... A lot of the evidence is, like, look how many primitive basal traits monotremes have in common with the sauropsids, right? The birds and the reptiles. Um, Like the brain thing and the eggs and all the things. And the shoulder. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So, speaking of eggs, um, scientists analyzed some monotrem DNA. And they found a gene called um, vitellogenin, which makes a protein for eggshell formation. Okay? Mm Mm-hmm. So this exact gene, well, it's not very exact. This this gene is shared with birds as well. Um, and that DNA analysis also suggested the last common ancestor of all the extant mammals lactated. So it was an egg-laying, lactating mammal to start with. Okay. So monotremes are very much like that basal mammal is what I was trying to say earlier. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the exact time when the monitoring line diverged from Therians is uncertain, of course. Uh, one study says as long ago as 220 million years. Um, other studies give younger estimates, like 163 to 186 million years ago. But yeah. what I'm trying to say is, it is a yeah. long time ago. Yeah. We have nothing in common with the platypus. That's yeah. not true, obviously. I already said what we did have in common with the platypus. But um, the most recent studies estimate... Um, early Jurassic, yeah. 166 million years ago-ish, um, and marsupials and eutherians diverged from each other, possibly the late Jurassic, 148 million years ago. Okay. So, um, platypus monotremes, like, platypus-like monotremes, with probably the, fir- the first kind of form. Um, so the first occurrence in the fossil record of a platypus-like monotreme is from about 110 million years ago, so the early Cretaceous, and that's when Australia was still connected to South America by Antarctica. Gondwana, I believe that supercontinent was called, but I forgot to write it down, but I looked at it.
1: Is this when, uh... This is where I need some refreshers. This is when Pangaea is starting to break apart and there's
0: Like I said, the supercontinent was called Gondwana at the time of right. these three groups of land. Okay. Um so early so they found early platypus fossils from the Late Cretaceous and the Paleocene, um, in southern South America. Okay. And what that tells us is that they also must have been present in Antarctica, but we haven't found any fossils there for obvious We've reasons. We've had a hard time finding we don't go Many there as there. much as as much as we go to other places in the world. Yeah, yeah, and
1: it's also a little harsher to uh, work in, excavate, just yeah, all those things.
0: Yeah, so this Cretaceous monotreme they named Steropodon galmani, um, which i it's it's in its own family these days from molecular studies. So it's not super related to the living platypus, but that's you can think of that as the first in the line of platypuses that. Um, and then the living platypus family is Um There are two extinct genera, the monotramatum and the obduron. And then obviously the ones that are still alive. of sure. The Um And so when did akinism platypuses split? So about 19 to 48 million years ago, says one study. Another says 17 to 89 million years ago. Mm-hmm. The basic theory is that echidnas split off from platypuses. So platypus came first and, like, evolved into a, an echidna. Okay. An ancestor, you know. Yeah. Um, so basically, yeah, platypus-like ancestor left the water, grew some spines, and you have an echidna. And the major evidence for that is that platypus fossils, uh, modern platypus fossils, go back about 60 million years. Wow. Whereas modern echidna fossils or echidna fossils in general only go back about fifteen to seventeen million years. Okay. But still, there have been platypuses in this form for like sixty million years. So I'm trying to say that's
1: crazy. Okay. Isn't it? Yeah.
0: Yeah. Some of the extinct platypus forms were like three times the size of I was this one. Say. But that's what always happens, right? There was yeah. that phase of very large things.
1: Yeah, that was the late Jurassic when typically when things were large, right? And later than that, too?
0: Later than that, too. Okay. Yeah. Um, So, let's talk about cool stuff that I haven't yet told you about the platypus. Let's focus on the platypus. Okay. Okay. So, the first fun fact I have about platypuses is Is that... It's
1: just a beaver walking backwards. I don't know if anybody's heard that one before.
0: (laughs) No, I'm not laughing at your joke. I'm laughing at the fact that I was about to say... The first fun fact about platys is that, that they're real. Okay, good. <laughs> and then you you said something that kind of went with that, but like in an
1: yeah.
0: opposite way. Anyways, um, why am I telling you that? You probably already know that, unless you're ever and you think they're beavers that walk backwards. Um, when the first platypus specimen was sent back to England from Australia in the late 18th century, so I think it was like 1798. Um, they thought it was a hoax of taxidermy. hmm. Uh, like someone attached a duck bill and duck feed and beaver tail on an otter is yeah. what they thought. Maybe. And who could blame them? If you listen to our mermaids episode, you know that people did hoaxes of taxidermy all the time, like the Fiji mermaid where someone sewed a fish and a monkey together. Yeah. You know, anyways. In the first scientific description of the platypus, which was published in 1799, there's a famous zoologist you might have heard of if you know zoology called George Shaw. It's hmm. so important. Anyways, he wrote, quote, it naturally excites the idea of some deceptive preparation by artificial means. <laughs> uh, and he said that before we even knew it laid eggs.
1: <laughs> hmm.
0: Because we didn't discover that for another 100 years, like the late 1900s. Right. So, like I said, the platypus lives in freshwater wetlands on Australia's east coast. So that's like Victoria, Tasmania, South Australia, Queensland, and New South Wales. Um, another platypus fact is they have two layers of fur because they need a lot of insulation. Um, they use their fur layers to trap air next to their skin. Okay. Um, it keeps them kind of waterproof and buoyant. And, uh, they're underwater for about 12 hours a day looking for food. So they need to be
1: Yeah. Um, Warm, dry, and buoyant. Yes.
0: So they have something cool on their feet, which is retractable webbing. So when they need to walk on the land, they can retract the webbing and just expose just the claws, Yeah. which helps um, because they need all the help they can get outside of water. They uh, have really short legs, like I said, awkwardly positioned, to be honest. So they have to exert 30% more energy to move around on land than another mammal of a similar size to them. Um, so, you know, they need a lot of food, but we'll talk about that in a second. Because first I want to say their tail is really fat. Like they use their tail to store about 50% of their fat. Who Um, female platypuses also use their tail to like incubate their eggs and keep them warm when they're in their burrow. Um, so the platypus is, like I said, needs to eat a lot. They eat between 20 to 50% of their body weight every day.
1: That's a lot.
0: That is a lot. I mean, they're little, but that's still a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and one of the reasons they need to eat so much, uh, is because they use a lot of energy. They have a cool ability to be in colder water than almost any other aquatic mammals, uh, freshwater ones at least. So a lot of, um, species of similar size. So obviously seals are bigger, they can have more fat, but like an otter or something of similar size um can't really maintain their body temperature in water that's under 25 degrees celsius it has to be really warm for a lot of animals yeah for a lot of animals we live in canada so i think we're just used to animals being like able to be in cooler water yeah not where they live in australia obviously yep um so the platypus though can maintain its body temperature in water as cold as five degrees celsius that's pretty cold yeah so they have extremely low what's called conductance, like heat conductance to the outside of their body. Yeah. yeah. They have obviously good insulation, like I said, and they can change their peris- peripheral blood vessels to, you know, to shrink them so they don't lose a lot of heat that way. Okay. Um, a platypus becomes fully grown between 12 and 18 months. They start reproducing around 18 months. Uh, and they're pretty long lived for their body size. They live more, you know, up to 20 years in the wild and about 23 in captivity is what we've... Found.
1: Sure.
0: Um, they are near threatened by the IUCN, but they're heavily protected by Australian law, which is good. They, the fines, they cannot be captured or killed except for scientific research, is the law. And the fines are like hundreds of thousands of dollars, so don't mess with them. There was a guy recently fined $289,000 for capturing a platypus. Wow. Yeah. Take that. Okay. So another weird fact about platypus, platypuses, um, when they're put under UV lights, they glow green-blue. Uh,
1: okay. That one I was not expecting.
0: I had to include this quote from the Nat Geo article I read. Quote, which is strange, but no stranger than the people who keep putting them under UV lights.
1: <laughs> sure.
0: Yeah. Um, Good point. So they glow because of something called biofluorescence. So that's when a living organism will absor- absorb short light wavelengths. Yeah. Like from the sun, for instance, and then re-emit them as longer wavelengths. Yeah. So short being like red and long being like the green-blue we just talked about. Right. Um, Biofluorescence, just to make a note, it's different than bioluminescence. Correct. Which we also have an episode about if you want to check that out. um, That's when you're creating the light from your own body through a chemical reaction, not, you know, capturing it and re-emitting it. Bioluminescence, you don't need an external light source to make it work. Correct. Um. So... There's a lot of non mammals that can biofluoresce. reptiles, birds, fish, that kind of thing. Um, but only a few mammals we know of can do it. So only certain species of opossums and flying squirrels.
1: They, okay.
0: Glow under UV light. Yeah. Um, as well as platypuses. And as for why they do it, the answer is no freaking clue. No idea. No one knows. There's no guesses. There's like, I don't know, that's weird.
1: And I would have to assume (laughs) it's not their fur that's fluorescing would have to be this. skin. It looks like
0: their fur. They have Does it very really? thick fur. Yeah, look. we'll look up a picture after this. Look up okay. a picture if you want. It looks like their fur. It's all over. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. I don't know. I don't know. Um, but I bet you were uh, titillated earlier when I mentioned electrolocation. Yeah. I bet. So we're going to talk about that now. Um, as I said earlier, platypuses don't have teeth for most of their lives. Um, which And echidnas, but we'll get to them later. Uh, which makes it difficult to chew hmm They do combined come...
1: with no stomach acid, it must be really tough to get nutrition from anything.
0: Yeah, so they scoop up gravel from the riverbed when mm-hmm. they're scooping up their food. Yeah. Um, and then packs all that into like cheek pouches, carries it up to the surface, and then munches away using the gravel and the like teeth stumps, like the knobs where teeth used to be like a the, little the bit bone. Which apparently other animals that have tooth loss as adults don't do. They don't still chew like that. Okay. So that shows us that their ancestors probably did have teeth and lost them.
1: Oh, okay. Because they okay. have the
0: mechanism of chewing. Anyways. Um, so, why no teeth? Like a shark, the platypus uses electronic impulses to detect their underwater prey. Yeah. And locate things. So, a platypus's bill has thousands of these specialized cells. So, like, around 40,000 electroreceptor cells. Which means they can detect electric fields generated by a living thing. Okay. It's so sensitive, a platypus could hunt with n- no... Oh, none of its other senses. Like, no eyes, no ears, no nose, nothing. Wow. They can just rely entirely on their build electrolocation ability. Um, and that's probably an adaptation to foraging in cloudy water.
1: Makes sense, yeah.
0: Yeah. Okay, we still haven't answered the no tooth thing. Okay, so there's a cool thing that you can do to look uh, inside that's not an MRI. It's kind of like a cat. Okay, so computed tomography imagery. Sure cats yeah and it shows that they have a large trigaminal nerve and enlarged infraorbital canals okay so those changes are necessary for the enhanced electroreceptive abilities they have but that takes up space and they don't have space available for roots the tooth roots in their skull canal like got it okay if that makes sense. So the loss of their teeth might have resulted from this like, a shift in foraging behavior, um, and they needed to elaborate their electrolocation system, and so they don't have room for teeth, basically, in their skull.
1: Right. Interesting.
0: Um, so these well-developed trichominal nerves and electroreception are found in monotremes at least as far back as the early Cretaceous. Um, but there are different, the different extinct groups have different kind of levels of how, how good they could do this, how well they could do this. Um, so monotremes that did have teeth, like the Abduron, uh, no, Abduradon that lived in the Miocene probably had less developed electroreception, they think. It
1: makes sense. You know, makes it's like sense, competing yeah. systems.
0: Exactly. Yeah. So researchers think that the loss of teeth and the kind of extreme Development of electro-receptivity might have been a, a relatively recent emergence. Okay. Um, so I'll touch on this in the echidna section, but the echidna still does also have some rudimentary electro-reception. So that's interesting because most terrestrial animals don't have anything like that. Yeah. I'll get to that in the echidna section, though. We're going to talk about the venom um, because I'm sure you're interested in the venom. It's true. It is lethal. However, there has never been a recorded death from platypus venom or this article just said from platypuses or from platypus venom. Um, Okay. Unless you're a water rat.
1: Oh, well, I'm not.
0: Because I watched one video. I just want to, this is a little off topic, but I just want to say this because I watched this video, okay, which featured a platypus and a ricali, which is an Australian water rat. So the rats are similar size to a platypus, but a little smaller. Um, and they share burrows, meaning they don't go at the same time. But they both look for similar burrows and just kind of use them if somebody else isn't using them kind of thing. Yeah. So this leads to conflict. And of in this course. particular video, a platypus and a rakali had a conflict over a burrow. And the Rakali very unwisely, just wouldn't let it go. And so this is a case of like don't start what you can't finish because a platypus got fed up, took this thing out, held underwater for 10 minutes and drowned it and it just went right back to its burrow. Hmm. So um, unless you're a water rat, you're probably safe from a platypus is what I'm trying to say okay back to the venom. They, they're, they're researching it currently for a potential use in diabetes treatment. Oh cool. so they analyzed the genes of the platypus. And they discovered that the venom contains uh, the metabolic hormone glucagon-like peptide 1, so GLP-1. And it's normally secreted in our guts, all mammal, well, animal guts. Okay. And that stimulates the pancreas to produce insulin.
1: Sure. When you yep. produce
0: the insulin, you lower your body's blood sugar level. Yep. Okay. So in humans, the hormone degrades very quickly, within minutes. Okay. And when they looked at the platypus GLP1 gene, they saw there's a change in the sequence that suggests it's not degraded. And it's a big surprise because in the other animals, other mammals we look at, it's all the same sequence and all gets degraded. Okay. So this could be an answer for more effective and safer treatment options for like type 2 diabetes and other metabolic type diseases. Yeah. Um, so there are management medications for type 2 diabetes that low, you know, lower your blood sugar levels by improving the cells' sensitivity to insulin or helping the pancreas produce more insulin. Yeah, and one of those medications is called Exenatide, and that uses a synthetic GLP-1 hormone. Um, and so that improves the insulin production and lowers glucagon production, which is like the antagonist, like it raises your blood sugar. Um, and so they actually developed Exenatide again, relatively recently after a discovery similar to this because they found GLP-1 in the saliva of a Gila monster.
1: Cool. Okay.
0: So now this could lead to more development. So the researchers the researchers said, we are learning more every day about the positive effects of the GLP-1 molecule on different org- organs. A hormone that could withstand elimination in the body could mean easy dosing for people who use these medications. So, right. you know, if it doesn't degrade right away, then you could take less of it less often. Yeah. Um, that would be Cool. Um, but that's not the only thing the platypus has to show us, teach us, I guess. So in 2010, scientists discovered that the um, platypus milk has unique antibacterial properties. Cool. Which they're hoping can be used to fight superbugs. Um, now, it makes sense that platypuses have antibiotics in their milk because they don't have nipples. Oh. Like echidnas. So instead, they just release milk through their skin, through certain pores. We'll, okay. I will I'll specify in a little bit. And their young suck on their skin. Anyways. Okay. So um basically, there's just a lot more exposure to the environment. Right. Of the milk. Yeah. So they need to have that kind of to, to combat it. Um, so when they analyzed the antibacterial properties, they found... Um, a new, a, a completely new protein they're able to characterize that has a unique, never-before-seen 3D fold. Sure. Uh, the way a protein folds defines how it works.
1: Got it. Okay. okay. It's
0: very important. And you can use a lot of computer modeling about di- different folding anyways. Makes sense. So um, they have unofficially named the new protein the Shirley Temple.
1: <laughs> okay.
0: Uh, you might be able to guess what it looks like.
1: Yellow with a little bit of grenadine, so kind of red at the bottom.
0: Oh dear, Col- color is not so much what I'm going for here. Okay. Sh- shape, maybe the okay. fold, you know, so
1: more like a ringlet of hair. It
0: is a ringlet. Good job. Yeah, yeah. So they they think the specialized protein exists only in monotremes. echidnas have it as well. So again, I'm going to assume this trait evolved before the echidna and platypus lineages split. Yeah. Um, so it must be really old adaptation, and I think that's cool.
1: Yeah,
0: cool ancient antibiotics. It is very cool. Yeah, so it's not just discovering this protein that's important. It's like discovering a whole new type of fold means that they can make drugs like this that they weren't they wouldn't even know existed, right? Yeah,
1: it's
0: it's very cool. Um, all right, let's move on to cool stuff about echidnas that let's, I haven't told you yet. Let's do that. Okay, so fun fact number one, which I already mentioned, is that there are five subspecies.
1: Of short beaked
0: echidnas. Um, So the short beaked echidna, Tachyglossus aculatus. Tachyglossus means quick tongue because of how fast they can, you know, use their tongue to catch ants and termites and such. Um, Aculatus means spiny or equipped with spines. Spiny tongue? Spiny quick tongue.
1: Okay. Very very cool. Spiny,
0: yeah. So the subspecies that most people are familiar with, that's Tachyglossus aculatus aculatus. Of course. That one lives all over. Queensland, New South Wales, South Australia, and Victoria. Then there's one subspecies that lives on Kangaroo Island only. And it's uh, Tachyglossus aculatus multi Okay. (laughs) There's one that lives just on Tasmania called uh, Tachyglossus aculatus cetosis. Okay. Uh, One from the Northern Territory and Western Australia, which is aculatus acantheon. And that's... there's a tropical subspecies from northern Queensland and Papua New Guinea, and that's Aculatus loesi. loesi. Loesi? Loesi? Something like that. Sure. Um, there are differences among the subspecies, obviously, or else we wouldn't have made them subspecies. No, that's right. <laughs> Kangaroo Island echidnas have longer, thinner, and paler spines, and they have more spines compared to the mainland species. Okay. Um, Tasmanian echidnas have to be adapted to the cold. So they have a lot, a lot, a lot of extra hair. So much hair, sometimes you can't really even see their spines among their hair.
1: Really? Okay.
0: Um they also are smaller than the mainland echidnas. hmm So the echidna probably got its English name in an homage to the Greek mythological figure, Echidna.
1: This would make sense, sure. Who
0: is a half woman, half snake, the mother of Cerberus and Sphinx. Mm. The mother of monsters, they call her. Yeah. Echidna and, um, who did she have all the kids with? Another monster. Echidna and. I don't
1: know. wouldn't be like chronos or something, would it?
0: No, no, no. It was another monster. Mm. It's gonna drive me crazy. I'll probably stop recording and be like, i and just yell it out because it'll come to me right when I stop thinking about it. Of course. Typhon. It's Typhon.
1: Oh, cool.
0: <laughs> Never mind. I got it. Um, so because it's got like this half reptile, half mammal thing going on, maybe that's why they gave it that name in English. Um, they're also called spiky anteaters. Obviously, Mm, they're not an anteater. Um, but, you know, they have a long, slurpy tongue, and they, indeed, just mostly eat ants and termites. Yeah. Their tongue and snout are perfectly adapted for it. Um, their tongues are usually about half the length of their bodies. Okay. And they have very powerful claws to dig up, like, a termite mound or something. And since they don't have teeth, and they can't open their mouths wider than, like, five millimeters. Oh. They don't chew. So unlike the platypus that chews against its teeth dubs. Yeah. These guys just use their tongue to squash the bugs into their upper palate. Their palate. Yeah. And the tongue moves very, very fast. It has been measured to move in and out of the snout a hundred times a minute.
1: That's pretty fast. Quick tongue. Yeah. Yeah. Quick spiky tongue.
0: (laughs) No, the tongue's not spiky. They're spiky quick tongue. Um... And the penis, but we'll get to that later. That's okay. also spiky. So the tongue has the ability to just not pick up splinters whatsoever when they're, they just get bugs. Hmm. It's pretty impressive. Um, and it can eat really quickly because of this. So a three kilogram, like six and a half pound echidna can eat 200 grams of termites in 10 minutes. And I know that that does not impress you yet, but... Would it impress you if I told you a termite weighs around 2 milligrams? So that's like 100,000 termites in 10 minutes.
1: That's pretty fast.
0: That's more impressive now, right? It is, You're like 200 grams. That's ridiculous.
1: Wow. Yeah, that's a lot of termites. Okay.
0: Yeah. So spines are modified hairs, mostly made of keratin.
1: Sure.
0: Um, They have insulation from their fur. They can be honey-colored, dark reddish-brown, black... They can be beige. They can be a whole range of colors. Um, The tail is covered in fur. The underside has some fur on it. Uh, And the fun fact I have here, which is super fun, is that the Echidna probably has the world's largest flea. Flea? Yeah. Bradyopsalot echidnae. Okay. It's four millimeters long, each one of them.
1: Wow. Yeah. Okay.
0: So, as I said before, the Echidna also has electrolocation making it the only terrestrial animal we know of that does that.
1: The conductiveness of air is, like, way less than water, though. Well, not,
0: like. not just that, but they only have, like, 2,000 or less receptors compared to the platypus' 40,000.
1: So is this a case of this being, like, a sense that probably doesn't get a lot of use in the echidna, then?
0: It's probably almost vestigial. It. I wouldn't say it doesn't get any use, but they can't rely on it the same way a platypus can sure. rely on theirs. It's probably sure. a combination of this vibration that feel was detected and then I need to use my other senses or yeah. I use my other senses and then this sense helped the last little bit of it or whatever. Okay. Um, but just because they are a land animal doesn't mean they don't swim. The is actually swim very well and they like to swim to cool down. Um, they swim with their... Only their snout above water like a snorkel, which I (laughs) think is awesome. Um, So the short-beaked echidna is pretty tiny. Like I said before, you know, I I don't want to say three kilograms. Six is about the max, though. Okay. Um, But the long-beaked echidna can get up to 16 kilograms.
1: It's much bigger. Much
0: bigger, yes. Um, And they think the echidnas are probably a keystone species, in Australia, like, heated the ecosystem health because of bioturbation. So that really just means reworking soil. Okay. Because they dig so much. So they've estimated a single echidna can move 7,200 cubic feet of soil a year. It's 204 cubic meters. Um, And it's the most widespread of any terrestrial Australian species. Pretty common. Some species, at least. Pretty common.
1: So it's moving a lot of dirt in a lot of places.
0: Yes. And Other bioturbators have been more heavily impacted by human settlement. So now echidnas are like one of the main ones. Okay. Yeah. So because they need to do so much digging, they have really strong front limbs and claws. And they also have their hind feet pointing backwards for digging. Mm. They look odd if you look at the back feet, um, which really baffled. Here's taxidermy again. Which really baffled the 19th century European taxidermists because they often ended up turning them around and mounting them with their feet on the, quote, correct way, which means there's specimens in museums all over the world that have their feet on backwards. Yeah. Um, The guy writing the article was saying he often finds it funny to go to different natural history museums and see if they have a correct echidna or a backwards feet echidna. Yeah.
1: Oh, okay. (laughs) Fascinating.
0: Um, Which, by the way, fun fact, means they can reach backwards and up with their back legs and use their back legs to scratch between their shoulder blades.
1: Mm Mm-mm. Okay.
0: I can't bend that way. No. No. Um, When they're really spooked, this is really cool. So like they do this, for instance, with all the forest fires Australia has. They just dig straight down. Go. So when they're really spooked, they'll just vertically go down. Um, They can shimmy their forelimbs to clear the dirt underneath. And then they use their claws to lock themselves into roots and pebbles and stuff under there. So they're impossible to pick up. They can move Hmm. their spines individually to wedge them into other cracks. So you just cannot get them out. So they're (laughs) like a perfect predator defense. You're like, they're, they're done. So during like the forest fires, some of them just like waited till it got really bad near them, then just dug straight down. And there's, if you look online for images of echidnas after wildfires, like ones that don't go down far enough, have like their hair burnt off, like halfway. Yeah. Their spines burnt off halfway, like they melted. Yeah. Is what happened because they didn't dig down far enough. But it just looks like someone like clear cut a forest. Like, like there's all these like stumps, like flat stumps. Like they f- melt into this flat. I really, yeah, look up pictures of echidnas after wildfires. It's crazy. They're hoping it doesn't hurt them because it's hair. And like, you know, if we got the ends of our hair cut, it wouldn't hurt. Yeah. But like, we hope.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: Anyways, look that up. Um Echidnas also have surprisingly large brains. They have a large prefrontal cortex, which is the part of the brain in humans that's responsible for higher level strategic thinking. They have a high degree of brain folding, which is another indicator we usually use of intelligence.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, in fact, they have the largest prefrontal cortex relative to their body size of any mammal. 50% of the volume compared to 29% for humans. Okay. Um, so they did some experiments with, you know, simple maze, opening trapdoor to access food... Um, ability to remember what's been learned for over a month at least. Yep. So they've put them on their learning ability on par with a cat or rat. Okay. But there's not been a lot of studies done. So. I was
1: going to say, and, and I, I can't necessarily place a cat or rat's level intelligence against Ooh. other things, but...
0: You know that rats are often used in like different mazes and their uh, yeah. problem-solving abilities. Totally. Yeah. Um, scientists have even discovered echidnas have experienced random eye movement while they're sleeping. Oh. Um, we're obviously not sure what's happening in the echidna brain, but human REM has been connected with dreaming. Yep. The video I watched, they made this joke where they're wondering what echidnas could be dreaming about. Maybe they're chasing chaos emeralds in their dreams. Mm -hmm. And I had a good laugh at that. But also, um, I have to call this out. I don't think Knuckles looks anything like an echidna. Fair enough. If you don't I mean, know what I'm talking about, I'm being too nerdy right now. I'm talking about Sonic the Hedgehog yeah. and a character named Knuckles the Echidna.
1: Sonic looks a little bit more like a hedgehog than Knuckles looks like an Echidna for
0: sure. Yeah. yeah. So the next oddity on this long list of oddities are the Echidna's eyes. So they're unique in the animal world because of how hard and flat they are. Probably the flattest of any mammal. So what's the advantage of that? They have a super long focal length. Okay. You can see prayers coming a very long way off. And what's the give and take is that you lose your visual acuity. Okay. So you can see things coming a long way off, but you can't see things in very good focus. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and their eyes are really hard, so they don't accidentally get punctured by their spikes when they roll up into a ball. Makes sense. And how can they roll up into a ball? Well, they have one of the shortest spinal cords of any mammal. It only extends down to their... Thorax, like our spinal cord ends at our first or second lumbar vertebra, and for the echidna, it's the seventh thoracic vertebra. I know that doesn't make <laughs> does make it clear for most people, no. um, but basically, they they just need a short spinal cord so they can wrap into a ball. Okay. So their spine doesn't have to bend so much. Right. Yeah. Um. Okay. Echidnas are remarkably adaptable. You can find them in like every ecosystem in you know, where they live in Australia and New Guinea. And one of the reasons it's so adaptable is it has the ability to enter a state of torpor when it needs to. So despite where they live, they actually don't do great with heat.
1: Interesting. They lack
0: sweat glands. So they spend most of the hot times in their burrows underground. And when it gets too cold, they go into torpor meaning they're going to slow their metabolism way down to conserve energy. Torpor is like a temporary hibernation, not like a full hibernation. Okay. Um, they also go into torpor if they can't find enough food. They'll just wait for more food to show up, which I think is a good oh, strategy with ants. They reproduce pretty quick.
1: They, they do. That's <laughs> accurate.
0: Yeah. So monotremes already have a very low metabolic rate relative to other mammals. Um, the platypus keeps their body temperature on average around 32 degrees Celsius, and, you know, ours is well, 37, right? Yeah. Um, the echidna keeps their temperature closer to 30 degrees Celsius, somewhere between 28 and 32 usually. Okay. And that's, you know, the average for marsupials is 35 degrees Celsius and the average for mammals or placental mammals, sorry, is 37. So uh, much cooler. Um, The echidna specifically has a metabolic rate around 30% of what a placental mammal's rate would be at that size. So it's the echidna's. The echidna is the lowest energy-consuming mammal. Um, Okay. Yeah. Fun biology fact: low, relatively low metabolic rates are common in animals that eat ants and termites, and also common in burrowing animals. And obviously, echidna Mm. is both of those. Yeah, that's a nice Venn diagram cross section. The metabolic rate of an animal is its lifestyle. Okay. Yeah. Um, So during torpor, the echidna can let its body temperature fall as low as five degrees Celsius. It usually stays at or above 11, though. Okay. Um, The heart rate falls from like a 50 to 68 beat per minute range to like a 4 to 7 beat per minute range. They breathe maybe once every three minutes at the slowest. Wow. Uh, That's 80 to 90% slower than when they're an active animal. Uh, So overall, the metabolism can drop to one-eighth of normal.
1: That's incredible.
0: It's very cool. Uh, And since they spend so much time in these underground burrows, they also have adaptations to deal with high levels of carbon dioxide and low levels of oxygen. And it's also helpful during wildfires. They do well relative to the other animals during wildfires. Um, They just hide underground.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Makes sense.
0: So here is where I'm going to talk about monotreme reproduction, um, in which sex will be referred to if you don't want to hear it. Um, Because if you don't think that monotremes are weird yet, uh, in, in a, again, a wonderful way. Yeah. Um, you, I may be about to change your mind.
1: Okay. Well, let's see.
0: I'm going to wow you. Probably not with this first part. Oh. <laughs> this is just the mating rituals. This is the pre sex. The pre sex is less, less, uh, um, what's the word? Eye, eye popping. So, short beat echidnas, long beaked echidnas. Most echidnas are solitary. They have a territory of like 50 hectares and then they get together when they mate and that's the only time they really get together. Okay. Um, For most subspecies, uh, Teciglossus aculatus, we're just mostly going to talk about the short beaked echidnas because we know more about them. Um, Trains of males will form with the youngest, smallest kind of at the back, the dominant in the front, and they might follow a single female in a courtship ritual for up to four weeks. Wow. Um, But the duration is going to vary with the subspecies and locations. Okay. Um, so during this time, they're going to forage for food together. The train will kind of change in composition. Like some males might go, some males might join among this time. Um, kangaroo island echidnas are especially known for these long mating trains, what they're called mating trains, where up to 11 males might line up to, to have their turn. Uh, other species do it as well, but it's more common on kangaroo island, probably because of population density, I think. Okay. Um, the aculatus aculatus subspecies rarely does these mating trains. Um, they go into deep torpor in the winter. And then when temperature increases, they emerge and all mate together. That's a pretty standard thing. Then you've got the Tasmanian echidnas, echidnas. So during winter, males will like get up every once in a while and go find a sleeping in torpor female and wake her up, mate with her. Then they'll go back to sleep. Sure. The females of that subspecies actually put their pregnancies on hold. While they go back into torpor and they'll activate them basically when they wake up.
1: Wow. That's cool. Yeah, very cool.
0: Yeah. Um, the males and females give off a strong musky odor during the mating season and they do this by secreting, you know, a kind of mucousy stuff from their cloaca, turning their cloacas inside out and wiping on everything. Oh, okay. Yeah, nice.
1: Interesting. All yeah. right.
0: Yeah. So before mating, The male is going to smell the female, sometimes just for hours. Just smell her. And at any point, the female can reject him by curling up into a ball. Mm. Go away. Leave me alone. Um, There's something I didn't mention first, is that the male digs this little crater for the two of them to lie in.
1: Oh, okay. You've got to have, like,
0: adaptations for your spines, right? Yeah. So when it's time to mate, the male's going to roll the female onto her side, and then he's going to lay on his side, so they're either belly to belly or... Spooning position. Sure. Except for like spooning where you have to be really s- careful not to stab yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the platypus has a cute mating ritual as well. Uh, first though, the males, you know, they've got that venomous spur. They compete over the right to like yeah. try to woo the females. Their venom gland size and aggression level both increase during the breeding season.
1: That could be which is deadly deadly to to some of, of the population. Which is of high
0: competition for females. Yeah. Uh, so after a female accepts, a platypus accepts their potential mate, she is going to allow him to bite onto her tail, and she's going to bite onto his tail, oh. and then they're going to swim in a circle, a little circle like that, while they're attached to each other for a little while. Then they'll, like, swim around together, dive, roll sideways, just do, like, you know, go on romantic a date. swimming. Yes, they'll go on a swimming date, sometimes for days. Okay. And then they'll do their little mating thing. Um, platypuses don't do mating trains, though. The females, if she mates, she's done. go away other males yeah um but the the male of course does not do that he goes and finds other females yeah yeah. that's how that works okay here's where stuff starts to get a little more odd we're going to talk about monotreme sex which i believe is a brand new sentence
1: well let's talk about
0: monotreme sex okay okay so monotremes because they have the cloaca yeah only semen travels through the penis. Because they don't need to worry about urethras and urine exits and all that stuff, there are some more interesting modifications to montray penis than in any other mammals. Sure. An echidna male has uh, internal testes, no external scrotum, and a highly unusual penis. Okay. Which is nearly a quarter of his body length when erect.
1: That's a lot of the body length.
0: They think maybe that's an adaptation, so the male won't get stabbed while he's trying to mate with the female. He could be mm. far away yeah. from her. Like it's not like the whole thing is for mating; it's for reach, yeah. reaching purposes. Um, it has been labeled the echidna penis has been labeled one of the weirdest penises of the animal kingdom by the Smithsonian. Good for them. Um, it is bright red, rosette-like, four-headed, and bilaterally symmetrical. Okay, meaning they use half the heads at a time and let the other half kind of rest yeah. and then alternate. Okay. It seems that they have control over a specific, like there's like two groups that they have independent control over. They don't right. have independent control over all four, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah.
0: Um. So, they have a four-pronged penis, if you will, and they only use two at a time. Would it surprise you to learn the females have a two-branched reproductive tract?
1: Oh, almost like Two from each set of the penises yeah, go with the yeah. two branch.
0: Exactly. So um, researchers researchers aren't sure why they use only two at a time. Okay. Um, it's possible it's to do with male competition for females because by alternating the use of each side, they, a kidney can ejaculate ten times without really pausing.
1: Okay. Impressive.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, so speaking of ejaculating, the sperm is weird too. Okay. It's grouped together in bundles of around 100. Instead of independent sperms? Yes. Okay. They ejaculate bundles of sperms. Okay. Um, Which appears to increase the sperm motility. And it makes sense since sperm competition is a strategy used by males when females have multiple mates, i.e., mating trains. Yeah. So um, all the monotremes have very large testes, which is another strong indication of competition between males. Makes sense, yeah. Um, In months before, the months before the mating season, the testes are going to grow at least three times their normal size.
1: That's a lot.
0: At least three times. That's minimum. Okay. Yeah. Um, Echidnas and the platypus? Well, they have spiny barbs on their penis. Echidnas have, they're called keratinized barbs. So they are, you know, just like made out of hair Hair. again. Yeah. not a lot of them, but yes, they do have that on their penis, similar to cats and many other mammals to help induce ovulation in the female. Yeah. The platypus, uh, boringly, has only a two-headed penis.
1: Hmm.
0: More interestingly, the entire thing is covered in highly visible spines. Doesn't oh. sound comfortable. No. Um, cur- currently, there's no data on what a platypus erection looks like, so they don't know if they use both at the same time or not. Oh. Shopping. Not enough research there. No, not enough research. The female has a two-sided reproductive tract, but like uh, this happens in lots of birds and some reptiles, only the left side of it is functional.
1: Oh. That seems like a waste.
0: Okay. We, they're weird. Yeah. I guess the birds and reptiles are weird too, then. I don't know. I, I, didn't, I didn't have time to look up why that might be in the birds and reptiles, which would maybe answer the question about the platypus. Maybe, yeah. Um, platypuses also use um, sperm competition methods like sperm bundling, which I'm not sure why if the female doesn't mate with more than one male.
1: But maybe it's just they don't anymore.
0: There's lots of, yes, correct. That is one good hypothesis. Um, another oddity is the sex determination system of okay. the monitoring. So, sex-determining systems evolved independently in the different groups of vertebrates. There wasn't, like, a basal one that we all shared. Okay. Um, Placental mammals and marsupials use an XY system. Yeah. Birds use a ZW system. Yeah. Reptiles and amphibians have different systems, like the temperature-dependent ones, uh, XYZW systems that have different origins from the birds and placental mammals ones. Monotremes have an XY system as well. Just different so genome sequencing shows no homology so common ancestor common root between the platypus x chromosome and the therian x chromosome but it does seem like there is homology with the avian z chromosome instead some shared interesting okay yeah So a male platypus has 21 pairs of autosomes, so, you know, not sex chromosomes, and then five pairs of sex chromosomes. Eight more sex chromosomes than we have. Yeah. There are only two sexes of platypuses, let me remind you. Right. So why would they need?
1: Well, I mean. Why? That's half of the (laughs) ZY or XY. You asked why.
0: Oh, God. I did say that, yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, So they have, a male will have five X chromosomes and five Y chromosomes. Okay. Not only that, though, platypuses don't have an SRY SRY gene on their Y chromosome. And you're looking at me like you don't know why this is a big deal. Nope. Because generally we think the SRY gene is what makes males males. Uh, uh the it's the sex determining region y sry gene. Okay. Um it's just involved in the typical male pattern of development. So the fact that they don't have one is interesting. Yeah. Um so which shows us the sry gene and the therian xy system probably evolved between 166 and 148 million years ago sometime after monotremes split off before marsupials did. Right. So that gives us a good timeline there. Anyways, the 10 chromosome thing makes sperm production a lot more complicated. I bet. Females have 10X chromosomes. So no matter what you do, your egg is going to have 5X chromosomes. No big deal. But males can't randomly apportion their sex chromosomes. Because then you're going to end up with a platypus that's 7Xs and 3Ys, and that won't end up as a platypus. Right. That probably won't develop at all. So when the male sex chromosomes are forming into sperm... They start in an alternating chain, X, Y, X, Y, X, Y, X, Y. And how they do this is when they produce a sperm, it's going to take every second sex chromosome. So you'll just start at the first one, take every X, or start at the second one and take every Y. Right. So you're only going to ever have a sperm with five X's or five Y's. Right. But again, if one X and one Y works, like, why Why do they do this? Um, So here's the hypothesis. We think slash know that 190 million years ago, the ancestor of the platypus had a single pair of sex chromosomes, just like us. Then, at any point, there could have been one mutation in which this pair of chromosomes swapped some pieces during recombination with ordinary chromosomes, autosomes. Okay. And then it passed on these new four sex chromosomes to its offspring. And... If that's not detrimental, which sometimes it might be, but a lot of times it'll be fine. Then now you've got platypuses with four. And then it happens again and happens again and happens again. Yeah. No one really is explaining to me why it would be more likely to happen in a platypus than like these multiple times. But the the point is that once it happens, because chromosomes recombine and break and join all the time. We know that. That's, That's a Okay. Yeah. Great. That's accepted. But we do know, you know, once that mutation happens, it can't unhappen. We've talked about this in the evolution of sex episodes. The odds of it, the same mutation unhappening. It's just not not going to happen. Um, So it was like just a chance thing. The perfect storm of chance. Once you have four, it's easier to get to ten, I guess.
1: I I guess so, yeah.
0: Yeah, and so it's never going to fix itself because there's no evolutionary pressure for it to do so. So they just are stuck with this weird thing. Um, the short-beaked echidna has 27 pairs of chromosomes, uh, normal ones, autosomes, and another possibly even weirder system of multiple sex chromosomes because in the short-beaked echidna, males have four Y chromosomes and five X chromosomes.
1: It's not even even.
0: No, it's not. Okay. But since X's and Y's don't pair with each other...
1: The, okay. It's
0: not an actual pair, like, you know, chromosome 21 and chromosome 21 are a pair. Yeah. From your mom and your dad. Yeah. X and Y aren't the same chromosome. They don't pair. Okay. That's why you can technically be a human with XXY, and though there might be some things a little different about you, you're not, like, dead.
1: Yeah. yeah. Okay.
0: So, females still have the 10 Xs, though. So, sperm, is either going to have 5 Xs or 4 Ys. Hmm. So yeah, I think it's interesting that male echidnas have 63 chromosomes and females have 64 chromosomes. They have a different number of chromosomes. Yeah.
1: Wow. Okay.
0: Yeah. Okay. So I don't know if I've impressed you yet with the weirdness because we're almost done. But I thought I'd talk about you know what happens after the sex part. Okay. So you made a you made a baby.
1: Right. Now you've got to
0: be a monotreme and lay an egg. You do. So the males are done. There's yeah. no male involvement, parental care, anything. Males are gone from this equation. Female platypuses are going to make a specially built like nursery burrow. They usually lay two eggs. And eggs in monotremes are not hard eggshell eggs. They are small, leathery, soft eggs.
1: Kind of like um, turtles, or at least mini turtles.
0: Closer to that. Yeah. Much smaller. Um, gestation for the platypus is uh, at least two weeks, possibly up to a month. It takes about six to 10 days to incubate the eggs. So they are pregnant. Okay. Right? They're pregnant for those two weeks to a month, and then they lay the egg. Yeah. And then it just stays for six to 10 days. Okay. Like I said, the female is going to incubate the eggs by curling around them with her tail touching her bill in this little cute circle. It's adorable. Um, in the 1980s, we finally discovered echidna females don't lay their eggs into their burrow like the platypus does. We thought they did. But what happens is they lay them directly into a pseudo pouch, like a marsupial's pouch, except the pouch isn't a permanent thing. It only forms oh. once it needs to form. So more like how a female human's uterus, yeah. you know, is really tiny. And then all of a sudden it does its thing when it needs to do its thing only. Yeah. Right. right. Um, yeah, the pouch is just not there until they get pregnant, basically. Um, the eggs, which are soft and leathery also, hatch in about 10 days after they're laid into their pouch. Um, the pregnancy length kind of depends on the species or subspecies. Like three weeks in the kangaroo island echidnas and tachyglossus aculeatus aculeatus, it's like 16 to 17 days. Yeah. Not very long. Um, echidnas only usually lay one egg at a time. Like I said, platypus is usually two, but it can be one to three. Okay. Monotreme babies, if you didn't know this, are called puggles.
1: Hmm. No, I didn't know this.
0: So echidna puggles only weigh about two grams when they hatch.
1: Oh, they're tiny. Okay. Platypuses
0: weigh way more. They're like 50 grams. 80, yeah. 80 maybe. You know, still like the size of a nickel. Yeah. They're only about three centimeters long. Yeah. Um, so just like a marsupial, they're born too early is what I'm trying to say. Not too early. Um to really to survive.
1: Yeah, developmentally. You know, or
0: or do anything. So in the echidna, they just hang out in the pa- in the pouch, which they have access to the milk production in there. Yeah. So they're kind of like a marsupial in that was, way. That's what I was gonna suggest, um, yeah. Platypus, you know, they just, again, they kind of stay latched onto their mother, but there's no pouch for them. So they attach themselves to their mother's milk areolae. So these are specialized patches on the skin that have about 100 to 150 pores each through which milk comes out of. Yeah. And because remember, they don't have nipples, yeah. but we used to think that they just, like the milk just like got sweated out or whatever, and they just licked it off. But that's, we think now that they suck on the patches to get the milk out.
1: To actually like vacuum extract the milk that sits under yeah, the layer. Yeah, more,
0: more simil- similar to, to how we do it with the nipple thing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, and Puggles eventually grow too large and spiky to stay in the pouch. Mm. So they usually evicted from there around seven weeks after hatching. Um, and around six months of age is when they leave the burrow. Uh, there's no contact with the mother after. Okay. Like they're done. Uh, in the six months, they go from those two grams to between 800 and 1300 grams by yeah. the time they leave the burrow. Uh, depending on the subspecies, because there's a, a wide range, a puggle will nurse for 160 to 200 days.
1: So, almost a little over half a year.
0: Uh, yeah, platypus. Puggles nurse for 114 to 115 days, and yep. they'll increase their weight about 20 times during the first 14 weeks of their life. Okay. Um, Yeah. I don't have any more weird monitoring facts. Oh. I think I said them all. I think so. But I don't know if I've convinced you that they're weirder than you first thought they were.
1: Yeah, there are some oddities there for sure.
0: But do you now think they're weirder than you first thought that they were?
1: Yeah. They're... Uh, similarities to lizards and birds is way higher than I thought.
0: It's very cool, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And actual similarities, not just it looks the same. Yeah. Like genetic similarities. Yeah. That's the part I think is very, very cool. I also think it's so cool how you can use, you know, this is an example of how you can use the fossil record to make a good guess about when certain traits evolved. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. Even if taxonomy is full of, Arguments. Yeah. All right. I don't have any earthly clue what I'll talk about, uh, in two weeks when you tune in again. So just let that be a a surprise for yourself. Just enjoy that. (laughs) Uh, we do have an email address if you want to say hi or suggest a topic or ask a question or correct me any of those things. Uh, it's teach me something for, you know, the, the number four, not the word at gmail.com. Um, So yeah, thank you so much for spending your time listening to this episode of Teach Me Something. Once again, I'm Melissa.
1: And I'm Everett.
0: And I hope you've learned something new.